Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Well, as we continue today, I want to look at a section of Scripture from uh, Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus is teaching about prayer. Can I say, when it comes to this issue of prayer, we're all learners, aren't we? We're all learners. We can get so much better at this thing. And thank you to Jeff, uh, just talking about spiritual maturity. And this is, this is one of those areas that we need to mature in. Most of us probably frequently say things like, well, I'd like to spend more time in prayer. I wish I spent more time in prayer. I don't know how to spend time in prayer. Can I say the encouraging thing this morning is Jesus' closest followers, his disciples, also struggled. We find this particular occasion in Luke 11. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Now, notice the wording, and maybe I'm making too fine a point of this. But he doesn't say teach us how to pray. Because prayer is actually not about formulas. It's not if you pray these right words, then things are going to happen. They didn't say teach us how to pray. They just said teach us to pray. Much more fundamental question. Teach us to pray. And perhaps that's the level that some of us are at today. I don't think we need more seminars on prayer and books on prayer and studies on prayer, and uh, even though they're all positive things. We just need to pray. We just need to do it. And in reply to this request in Luke 11, Jesus gave to them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And we've just seen that displayed for us this morning. Well, if we turn over to Matthew chapter 6, we have a little bit more detailed teaching uh, around this interaction between Jesus and disciples. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, it's in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Part I want to focus on today is in verse 6, where Jesus says, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When I saw those words, it just grabbed my attention. The Father will reward you. If I surveyed the room this morning and asked you the question, what's the end result of prayer? I think 100% of people would probably say, well, that the prayer would be answered. I wonder how many of us would actually say that prayer would be rewarded. And yet, in this teaching on prayer, Jesus doesn't stress prayers being answered. He stresses prayers being rewarded. I find that fascinating. And I want to do the best I can to try and unpack that a little bit this morning. So stay with me. We need to look at the context in which Jesus said this because he's actually talking about two different kinds of prayer. He's bringing a contrast. 
One type of prayer comes from the people that Jesus labels as hypocrites. And he says in verse 5, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love praying, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by man. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. So this is interesting. Jesus says the hypocrites' prayers are being rewarded. But what is their reward? Their reward simply is the accolades of men. You've got a good reputation. Everybody's seen you praying, impressive prayers. You must be a really godly man. And their reward is the recognition of men. Their reward is their reputation. That's one group. Then Jesus contrasts that with another group. And that's where he says, When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This type of prayer is authentic prayer because there's no one to impress. It's just you and God. And the main message of these three verses where he's contrasting these two types of prayer is this. When you are alone, when it is just you and God, with no one to impress, that's actually when you start getting really honest with yourself and honest with God. That's when your heart motivation is at its truest. That's when you will be genuine before God. Can I, can I encourage you this morning? God is not impressed by words. Can I encourage you because I do hear this from time to time. People saying, oh, I don't come to the, to the church prayer meeting because I'm just really scared about praying in public. And that's okay. Just join us. God's not impressed by words. God examines the heart. And if our words don't reflect our heart, then our words are empty. I think every one of us has been to a prayer meeting where some dude for 10 minutes prays in King James English. And after that, nobody else wants to pray. But again, God looks to the heart. In verse 7, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And there is a trap when we gather together corporately, when we gather together with a group of other people to pray. And the trap is this, that when we pray with others, we're often thinking more about how we are praying in front of other people than we are actually thinking about the God that we're communicating with. It's a trap. And if we're thinking more about what other people are thinking about my prayers then those prayers are not going to be genuine. There's a really easy way to identify if there's any hypocrisy in your prayer life, and that's this. If the way you pray in public is different to the way you pray in private, then we've got some work to do. We've got to examine our heart. But Jesus says the true state of your prayer life is what it looks like when it's just you and God alone 
in secret. Now, here's a caveat. Please, please don't allow what I'm saying this morning to cause you to shy away from public prayer gatherings. We've got to be a people of prayer. We've got to be a church of prayer. And we need to gather together to pray. The lesson is keep it real. Just keep it real. Uh, I told this story years ago when Esther was little. Um, she used to call band-aids dandades. And um, I used this as a lesson illustration many, many years ago about prayer and about formula prayers. People say, well, if you just pray this way, then you're going to get God's attention. And I liken it to Esther mispronouncing dandade or band-aid. And if she'd come and say, Daddy, I need a dandaid, I don't say to her, well, when you employ the right language, I might listen to your request. But while you're mispronouncing the word band-aid, I'm not paying any attention to you at all. No, my child comes with a, with a need and she can mispronounce the word as much as she wants. I know what the need is and I'm able to meet that need. So don't get hung up on words. Just say, God, you know my heart. You know my words. Sometimes my word fails me, but you know my heart. Examine my heart. That's what I bring before you in prayer. Keep it real. But the question I want to attempt to answer this morning is, what is the reward for prayer that Jesus talks about in this verse? Well, after Jesus had spoken about that, using that contrast of the hypocrite and praying in private, he goes on in verse 9 of Matthew 6 to say, This then is how you should pray. And in that context, in Matthew 6, he gives to us the Lord's Prayer. Now, here's the thing. We don't recite the Lord's Prayer in this church. Because if we do that as just something that becomes a part of our tradition, what we're actually doing is going directly against Jesus' teaching in these verses. Again, verse 7, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. King James Version says, and when you pray, uh, when you pray do not use vain repetitions. And, and unfortunately, sadly, tragically, the Lord's Prayer in many situations has become a vain repetition. And we're doing exactly what Jesus told us not to do. But in this beautiful prayer, in this, in this instruction that Jesus gives us, we find something so beautiful. We find something so richer and, and so much deeper. And I think as we unpack it, we begin to discover what the reward for praying is. And I'm just going to suggest three things. There's probably infinitely more. The first reward for prayer, friends, is communion with God, intimacy with God. I mean, that is a reward that you and I can approach God and know we've got God's attention, know that He's hearing us, know that our prayers are important to the Father heart of God. That is a wonderful, wonderful benefit. It's a privilege and it's an enormous reward. Amen. And Jesus begins this prayer, verse 9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the first thing we notice about prayer 
directed towards God. God, I'm just drawing my attention to you. Father, hallowed be your name. Goes on to say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's all about God. It's all about God. And there's something amazing that I discovered here. This is actually the first time in the Bible that God is ever addressed as Father in a personal sense. There are occasions through the Old Testament where the word Father is used, but it, it likens God to a Father, as a Father, like a Father. But here in Jesus' teaching, for the first time, Jesus is using this personal pronoun, speaking of God, addressing God in a way that has never been spoken of before. And in the space of three chapters, Jesus uses this title, Father, in a, in a really personal, intimate sense. And we've got to understand that was radically, radically new. No Jew would ever, ever dare address God as Father in that personal sense. But here Jesus is saying, as you pray, as you pray, just begin, hey, God, my Father. And you do that in this personal, intimate sense. It's relational, personal. Jesus introduces this concept because, friends, it's actually Jesus who makes that possible for us. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1 and 5, He has adopted us as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His will and pleasure. Romans 8 and 15, For you received a spirit of sonship, and by Him, that is by Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is a familiar term. It's an Aramaic word, closest translation, daddy. Beautiful. When I first came to Jesus, had a friend, uh, and he, he had a habit of doing something that really annoyed me at the time. And he'd begin prayer by saying, dear heavenly dad, or just dad. And it used to annoy me, but now I recognize, actually, it's perfectly legitimate. Abba. Daddy. And here's the thing. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ becomes our Father simply because we've been adopted in Christ and we share in Jesus' sonship. So when Jesus becomes your Saviour, God becomes your father and we are now adopted into that family. We are now united with him. That should excite us. Can I hear an amen this morning? And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3 and 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
Now, here's where the political correctness police in the church get it all wrong when they try to uh, um, make a gender-neutral version of the Bible. And they use inclusive language. They get it wrong simply because, technically speaking, all Christians, whether you are male or female, are sons of God. Because it's not about our, our gender, it's about who our identity is in. And our identity is in Christ, who is the Son of God. And in that sense, all of us, male and female, receive His Sonship. And unfortunately, I can't rewrite the Word of God. Unfortunately, I cannot apologise if you feel that somehow that sounds misogynistic in some sort of way. We are all sons of God, but if we change it, we lose something of the depth of truth of our identity in Jesus. But also, don't get too upset if you're offended by that. Because at the end of the book, we actually all become the bride of Christ. So whether you're male or female, we all end up with a female identity. I'm glad you're laughing. I'll move on. Friends, there is a wonderful thing that when Christ becomes your Saviour, God becomes your Father with all the benefits, as Jeff talked about earlier, of a child with his father. And the first reward of prayer, and it is a wonderful reward, is intimacy with the Father, intimacy with our Creator. Our Father, hallowed be your name. To hallow is just to revere Him. We revere His name because we know that God is big enough for any and every situation you could face. And we come in prayer, not just to a father, we come to a father who has no limit on his capacity, no limit on what he can do. He is totally sovereign. He is our creator and he is big enough and capable enough to meet any and every situation that you and I will ever face. That's the first reward that prayer brings, beautiful intimacy with God. And that's why before Jesus began to talk about this way of praying. He said, when you, go into your pray, when you go to pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Because again, the one place you can be totally and absolutely, completely honest about your own heart is when you are alone with God. He will not be shocked by anything you take to Him. He will not be put off by anything that you have to say. And as we expose our hearts, God begins to move. Maybe, maybe this is why some of us struggle with prayer. We find it hard, maybe because we find intimacy hard. Maybe because we find honesty hard. But honest prayer becomes the setting for God to speak. It becomes the setting for God to bring conviction, for God to reveal things, for God to show things. And sometimes you and I, how dumb are we? We do some really, really foolish things like not praying about something because God might say no. Or not praying about things because 
Well, I actually enjoy my secret little sin. Friends, it ain't worth it. And it is in that honest, secret communion with God where our hearts are examined and God does His deepest work. And the reward is huge. You go into the room, close the door, you deal with God in, a, in secret, alone, and Jesus says you will be rewarded. Can I say that is huge? That's huge. So that's the first reward. Prayer brings us into communion with God. And I'm going to be really quick on the last two. The second reward is that prayer brings us into alignment with God. Because having said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. He then teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's half the prayer gone. And so far, it's all about God. It's a good prayer. And Jesus is talking about God's activity on earth. God, your will be done. Your kingdom come. And intimacy with God leads to alignment with God. And this aligning our will with the will of God, it's not about finding middle ground. It's not, well, my will's over here and then God's will's over here. So I'll do a deal with God and we'll meet somewhere in the middle. It's not how it works. What is it that makes it possible for me to be able to pray with all sincerity and say, Father, your will be done in my life? What is it that makes that possible for me to be able to pray, pray that sincerely? God, your will be done. I can pray like that. Because when I know him, which is the first reward of prayer, then I will trust him. And when I trust him, then I will be able to say, Father, your will be done. It's all I want. If we can't do that, then we're going to continue to cling to our own little ideas and our own little agendas. And that's why our intimacy with God and our alignment with God are totally connected. Because knowing the will of God is not about having some spiritual GPS that says, oh, I'll walk down the street, turn left this way, turn right that way, and, and rerouting, whatever the GPS says. No, knowing the will of God, it, it comes out of that place of intimacy where we're honest and real, where we have communion with God. And in that place we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. Then the third reward is that prayer brings us into provision from God. And verse 11 down to verse 13, there are three personal requests. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. They are personal needs. They are physical needs, they're spiritual needs, they're moral needs. There's the physical need of, Lord, give us today our daily bread. Now, it does not say, give us today our monthly supply or give us enough provision to store up treasure for a year. Friends, 
we love, it's within our human nature and it's within our cultural conditioning to have everything neatly planned and neatly mapped out. We love the future to be secure. We love our long-term provision to be certain. Jesus does not guarantee that. He says, give us today our daily bread. A bit further on in the chapter in verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Don't worry about tomorrow. Lord, give me today. Give me all I need for this moment. It's all we can ask Him for and actually it's all we are entitled to. Proverbs 30 and 8 is really interesting. This this is profound. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That's profound. I won't tell you which one our culture is guilty of. The writer of Proverbs says, listen, what I want is enough for today. If I've got too much... I'm going to become too arrogant, think I'm okay. I don't need anything. I disown God because I am self-sufficient. I've shared this before, but on two or three occasions when I've been visiting a developing nation and, and, and ministering with the church with impoverished people, I've had pastors say to me, oh, we pray for the church in the West. We don't know how you can have faith in God when you have so much wealth. That's profound. And it's like, yeah, it's true. Our, our, our faith experience of God is so crippled and limited because we are incredibly self-sufficient. I, I praise God for where I live. I praise God for the wealth that we enjoy. I praise God for what we have available to us. But I also realize at the same time, it limits my dependency upon God. And there's a beautiful feature of the Christian life we don't talk about very much, but it's it is so important. It's, a, it's a, an important word in the New Testament. And the church in the West, us, need to meditate on this word. Here it is. Contentment. You're all scrambling on your phones to look it up. Contentment. Paul writes to the young pastor, Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 and 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. David said in Psalm 23 and 1, very familiar to most of us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm content. And so many people jeopardize their relationship with God because they're simply not content. And friends, if you're not content this morning, We need to revisit these steps. Am I in relationship with God, communion with God? Do I share intimacy with God? Am I aligned with God? Do I trust Him enough to be able to say, God, your will be done in my life? Do I know that God is enough? Am I content with that? God is sufficient. That the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So there's the first reward. God meets our physical need, but He meets our spiritual need. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. 
And there's something here I love that this is all uh, in these three requests. They're not me, my, they're we, us. It's done in the plural. And I think that is probably a reference to fellowship. We're in fellowship. We're walking this journey together. And particularly in regards to forgiveness, there is a great need forgiveness for forgiveness in the world, but there's a great need for forgiveness in the church as well. God, would you forgive me as I forgive others? And one of the great rewards that our prayer brings is not only does it put us right with God, it puts us in right standing in relationship with others. If we're willing, now again a caveat, sometimes we have to forgive without reconciliation being possible because of relationships with two people who have to be willing to extend the same to one another. But for us personally, I've simply got to say, God, have I got a right heart towards others? Have I forgiven others as you have forgiven me? Because we are forgiven in and through Christ, which means we need to be forgiving. What God has done in us needs to be extended to others. So we express our physical need, we express our spiritual need, and then there is a moral need. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Guys, we will always struggle with temptation, but one of the rewards of prayer is that God promises to deliver us from evil, to keep us from temptation. In the book of Jude, uh, verse 24, to him, who is able to keep you from falling. God will keep you. He can keep you from falling. And again, it's not just about me. This actually brings a source of blessing to others. The greatest blessing that I can be to my wife and my children is to maintain a right heart before God, to be right with God. Because the outcome and the overflow of that will always be a positive benefit for others. Right thinking, right heart, right motive, right action, right behavior. That my life as I press into God and as, as, as He keeps me, as He promises too, that there would be something about my life that shines the light of Jesus to others. So again, as we close, and I'll invite the team back. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this prayer of Jesus is about your heavenly Father, Daddy, Abba, who sees what is done in secret and will reward you. The reward intimacy with my creator the the reward through that intimacy developing a trust that says God your will be done in my life your will be done which then leads to that wonderful assurance of his provision what a great reward And out of the reward of that union with God, there will flow a blessing, not just into our lives, but a blessing that will be of benefit 
to others. Friends, we need to be a people of prayer. We've got to become a people of prayer. If we become a people of prayer, we will become a church of prayer. And I want to encourage you and challenge you today to find that place during the week where you close the door and say, okay, God, it's just you and me. My words fail me, but you examine my heart. And I need you to do that to develop a right heart in me, to to show me by your Holy Spirit the things that I need to work on, the attitudes I need to change. God, that you would transform me. And as I develop that intimacy with you, God, that I would just be aligned with your will. I can trust you enough to say, God, your will be done in my life. And out of that, the assurance of God's provision, all that I need. And that as we discipline ourselves to that habit, it just becomes an indispensable part of our wonderful union with God. I'm going to give us uh, 60 seconds just to still our hearts in the presence of God. Just close your eyes right now. And in a moment, we're just going to have 60 seconds able to just play before we close with one final song. But in that 60 seconds, just say, hey, God, it's just you and me right now. There are things I need to work on. God, as I deepen my relationship with you, I trust you, God, to change me, transform me from the inside out, align me with your will. And Father, in that place of intimacy with you, then then I trust you, God, to provide all I need. I don't need to be so consumed in the way the world is. With all the pressures, all the economic pressures, all the stuff that's going on that causes so much fear and anxiety. God, I trust you. You promise provision. And I trust you just with today. So Lord, as we enter this time, we pray that simple prayer that the disciples did. That simple request. Lord, teach us to pray.